invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Just a reminder that we will be doing the conference, and you can get a, not only sign up in the narthex, but there's a a handout you can get to invite people out. I think it's a great opportunity for people to come. A lot of people have questions about the end times, and those questions will be um, responded to biblically, and it's a good time of fellowship as well. Well, James chapter 2, hear now the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that need, they're needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures were fulfilled that say, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts by your spirit the importance of this teaching as it relates to works and faith. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before Palm Sunday, before Easter, of course, we were looking at this passage, and actually we're contrasting it with Paul. And people have believed over time that there was a conflict between Paul and James, and and we share that there's no conflict at all, that Paul is dealing with the nature of justification, and so when he tells the story of Abraham, he's talking about what is the, 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 what is the way that a person who's a sinner can have a right relationship with God. That's the question he's answering. On the other hand, James in our passage, who uses Abraham and uses the same story from Abraham, is concerned with the nature of true saving faith. What type of faith justifies us before a holy God? And so we looked at the one from Romans, and now we're going to return here and focus this morning on what type of faith justifies, what what type of faith saves us. And James will introduce this topic, and he'll do it in verse 14. And so look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And so James is asking this question rhetorically. He's saying you, you, you can have faith, but it may not be a true saving faith, and it, and it may not save you. It needs to be the right kind of faith. And so this is why it's so important. 
And, and, and many theologians have used Latin terms to describe this true saving faith. Um, there are three elements to true saving faith. Um, there is notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. That means knowledge, belief, or assent, and trust. And all three must be there. And James demonstrates on the, in the beginning here just by showing us that faith is not enough, knowledge is not enough. That, that's the first part. Uh, Notitia, as James shows us here, that we need to have more than simply knowledge, or, or faith has more than just its content. Content is important, don't get me wrong. You have to have knowledge of something. You're believing in something if you believe, and that content is the gospel. We know that, the death and resurrection of Christ. A a person cannot be a Christian without knowing that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and rose again. And so there is knowledge, things Truths that we, we must acknowledge. Uh, there is this notitia. That's the Latin. But it's one thing to know something, right? And it's true, and quite another to actually believe it. We, mu- we must agree with the content. It's not that Jesus just died. This historical event happened, and you say, I, I, I believe that. It's not that he just died on the cross for sinners, but he died on the cross for me. He died on the cross for you. Um, That Christ died as a substitute, taking upon himself our sin, that he he gave us his righteousness. You, You can know this and still not be saved, though, but you have to, so you have the knowledge of it, but you have to agree with it. You assent to it. You must believe that he died for you. And so there is this census. Well, having knowledge and belief must lead to true trust. And so that's the third one. It's possible to have knowledge and a certain stirring in your heart that, that Christ, you know, he, he may have died for me. I, I think I believe that. And, and, and yet still not be saved. We find this in the Scriptures. King Agrippa in, in Acts 26 We read that he says to Paul, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. His mind was touched. He heard about these truths, and his heart was stirred, but he did not turn his life over to Jesus. And and so uh, uh, true saving faith means that you must commit yourself to Jesus to be saved. You cannot have Christ as Savior if you don't submit to him as both Lord and Master. Faith demands trusting in him, submitting yourself to him, commitment. I, when I worked with teenagers, I used to illustrate this with a chair, uh, you, or we could use the pew here. When you come in, you're, you have knowledge enough to know those are pews, and those pews are places where people sit, and you believe that truth. As you come in, you see the pew, you say, that I believe that that pew can hold somebody in that pew. If I sit down, it'll hold me up. But see, until you sit down, you haven't trusted in the pew to do what it's supposed to be. Well, that silly illustration um, is what we have in here. We have knowledge, belief, and trust. You must 
receive the knowledge as Jesus and who he is as Savior and Lord, the gospel, commit yourself to take up your cross and follow him all the days of your life. And that kind of faith, that saving faith, produces good works. See, what James is doing here is challenging you. He wants you to answer the question, is the kind of faith I have the kind of faith that can actually save me? And so verse 14 sets the scene. In order to accomplish his goal of describing the true nature of saving faith, James gives us four case studies, illustrations, examples in these verses. And what he does is brilliant. James will show that true saving faith is demonstrated both manward and Godward. This is the fruit of true saving faith. And he'll give a negative case study or example of each, and then he'll respond with two positive examples or case studies of each. And so here, let me, there's four case studies in this passage. Two negative, two positive, and then he closes with an illustration in verse 26. That's the basic outline. And so we're going to look at these case studies. First case study, it's negative. This can be called, if you're looking for uh, uh, an outline, um, dead faith. This is dead faith. This is the man word negative example. Look at verses 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Uh, this is an, an easy illustration. If this is how you respond to a cold and hungry person and then think you have helped that person, James is saying, you're a fool. Uh, I, I, one commentator and preacher said the word, you're an idiot. I don't want to be as tough as him. But it fits. You know, a day never went by when I worked in Philadelphia um, I served there, not a single day went by that I didn't run into someone who was living on the street. And you're in downtown Philly, you're going to see it. So I want you to imagine something with me. It's the middle of winter, it actually snowed, it's freezing, and I see this man on the side of the street, and I say, let me help you, sir. And uh, he gets perked up, he, he says, yes, yes, he holds out his frostbit hand, and I say, be at peace. You know, you, you're going to need food, and you're going to have to warm your body, or, or you're not going to last long. And then I leave. And then later in the day, I run into you, and so proud of myself, I tell you, I helped a homeless man today. And you said, oh, you did? What did you do? And then I proceeded to tell you what I just said. How would you respond? You would say, what are you, a fool? You didn't help this person at all. You're acting like an idiot. It's evil. See, my words do not have the power to fill his stomach. My words don't have the power to warm his body. That's the point James is making. What good are your words without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that, James says in verse 16. And then he says here, let me make the comparison. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. For your faith to be genuine, biblical, saving faith, it, it must produce 
works. It, it must be more than mere words. Intellectual faith is not enough. And so that is the example of a dead faith. And then you ask the question, well, can that kind of faith save? And James says, no, dead faith can't save. Your works must measure up to your words. And so that's the first case study. That's the first example. The second one is also negative. And that one was manward, dealing with this homeless person and you had a need. Now it's Godward. And we can call this one a demonic faith. We had a dead faith. Now we have a demonic faith. Uh, uh, Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but demons have faith. They, they do. They believe in God. In fact, demons were told in Mark 3, they believe in the deity of Christ. And we're told in Luke 8 that they believe in eternal punishment. And in Matthew 8, they, t- they believe that Jesus will actually be the judge at that eternal punishment. And, and we can also surmise, I'm sure you understand, that they know and believe that Jesus died on the cross. They know that he rose from the dead. Obviously, they know that. Their faith is even stronger than the previous one, the dead faith. At least it, it touches their, uh, more than their, their intellect. They, they responded. They, they, it says they, they had an emotional response. They believe and shudder. When they think about the truth, it causes them that they believe, it causes them to tremble. And so they give an emotional response to their knowledge. It's a step above a dead faith, and yet it still cannot save. Now, I'm of the belief that this is the kind of faith of many churchgoers. And it's the kind of faith that many churches produce. You have, unfortunately, foolish men who are masquerading as preachers give you some watered-down scriptureless, emotional appeal week after week, and a person responds, their, their heart is touched by all the theatrics. Uh, their emotions are stirred. They get all excited. They may even go forward for an altar call, but they haven't heard the gospel. And, I, and I've experienced this. I, and this isn't an attack on altar calls. I went forward in an altar call, but there was gospel in the message when I went forward, I, retold, I, I took a group of teenagers, since I'm telling illustrations from when I was a youth pastor, I took a group of teenagers to a crusade once, a revival we were called here. Uh, the, the speaker shared these heart-wrenching stories. They were full of emotion. He was very good at what he was doing. And the teens got all caught up in the spectacle before them, and, and they wanted to go forward to be saved. And yet I would argue that they weren't being saved. And why would I say that? Well, first, the gospel was never shared. There were stories about, you, you know, the, the story of the man they heard yelling in hell, um, the person on their deathbed crying out, I'm burning, I'm burning, all these strange anomaly stories, kind of like the ones you see where a person comes back from the dead. Um, 
all that stuff, it got their attention, it got my attention. I thought it was foolish, but that was only because I was older. This man was really good at it. Um, and, and how they don't have to die alone. Everyone's going to die. And, and, and so do you want to not die alone and come forward? Well, who wants to die alone? An atheist doesn't want to die alone. Yeah, I guess I'll go forward. Nothing about sin, nothing about the cross, nothing about the resurrection. There was no gospel. That's one reason why I knew. Here's the second reason how I knew. Because after the fact, their lives didn't change at all. And this isn't talk about teens who are younger and may not be as mature. It has to do with the fact there was no fruit. There was no desire to know Jesus more. There was still only the desire to do the crusades and the camps and the fun activities, not to learn the word. And they learned something about God. They may have learned something about hell. They, they may have learned something about judgment. Their emotions were stirred, but it wasn't saving faith. The demons do the same thing. And so, let this be a warning. Having your emotions stirred at a, at, a, at a religious rally, believing in a few Bible truths does not save you. It must be knowledge, yes, and it must be the right knowledge. It must be belief in that knowledge that it's personal to you and that you trust it. And out of that, good works will be produced. You don't want to get the cart before the horse. You don't do the good works. I'll mention this in a moment. And then faith will come. You want to have faith, and out of the faith, you'll produce good works. One writer said, once you receive the life of Christ in you, you will reveal the life of Christ out of you. Only a faith of that kind can actually save you from the judgment to come. Now, let me also say, and I, I do not weary in reminding you of this, this is why we here, why me, when I came and I will continue to do, must focus on the gospel message and, and not water it down at all. And, and, and not give into the pressure of resorting to manipulation and maybe pushing aside talking the fact that you are all sinners bound for hell if you don't know Christ. We don't want to bring that up. There's hell and brimstone preachers. And why, uh, why, why would you do that? The crowds don't like it. Well, we cannot water down the message or all we're going to produce is a demonic faith in people. And so understand, people's souls are at stake. I promise you, if you bring a friend to church or maybe you're here now visiting and you haven't heard this gospel, I promise you every Sunday you'll hear the gospel of Christ so that you can know the truth and if the spirit works in your heart, you will believe it and trust it. And I do it also for everyone here who is a true believer in Jesus Christ. You know Christ. You already have been saved, but it's a reminder every week as is our confession of sin that you are forgiven that your sins have been covered and you've been covered in the blood of the Lamb. And so we must continue to faithfully proclaim that a person is a sinner and must receive Christ as Savior and Lord if they're going to be saved. A dead faith does not save. It's useless to mankind. A demonic faith does not save. It's useless with God. And James says in verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. And so there are the two negative examples. And James now 
is going to turn our attention to the positive case studies or examples of a dynamic faith, or we would say a demonstrated faith. Um, we got to keep the Ds. Uh, in each case, it, it, it's an answer to the previous two. We had a dead faith, right? And there was this useless man who, who didn't help the person who was in need. And he's going to contrast that now with the faith of Rahab, uh, which was useful to mankind. And then there's the demonic faith, which was shown to be useless with God. And he's going to contrast that by demonst- the demonstration of the faith that Abraham had, which is useful to God. And so let's look at the dynamic faith of Abraham first. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, when we talked about Romans, that's the same thing that Paul quotes to talk about how a person is saved by grace alone, apart from works. James now is using this to show how once a person is saved, they'll produce works. And this is no ordinary, routine demonstration of faith. When you think about it, this is a heart-stopping, terrifying demonstration of faith. You read about it in Genesis 22. God speaks to Abraham. Abraham was an idol worshiper. God called him, saved him, declared him righteous, and then tells him he's going to be the father of many nations, and his offspring will cover the earth. And And Abraham, he comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, and Abraham responds, here I am. And he said, I want you to take your son. I finally gave you your son. I know you're really old. I want you to take your only son, Isaac. And God says, let me remind you, you whom you love. You really love Isaac. He's your only son. I promised him to you. I gave him to you. Well, now I want you to go up to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him on that altar. I, I, I want you to imagine him. Um, and, and so kill your son. Uh, this is where shuddering is worth doing. An emotional response is necessary. Uh, but here's the difference. Abraham heard that call, knew what was required of him, knew what it would do to him and his family. He believed, though, and he, did, he also shuddered, but he did more than that. He acted. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for a burnt offering and, and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place. He, he then tells the other young men, stay here with the donkey. I'm going to take my son. He doesn't tell them why, but in his head, you know, I'm about to go kill my son on the altar because God told me to. And he took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife so that they went both of them together. Do you, do you sense the intensity of this? And Isaac now says, Father, and he says, here I am, son. I, I see the fire. I, I see the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? If we're making a sacrifice, I don't see the lamb. What, what's going to happen? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went up together. 
He was going up to have his son killed. God says, sacrifice, he obeys. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Do you see how from the life of Abraham, what saving faith demands of you? James 2.22 says, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. He was completely and utterly surrendered to God and his will. That's what's required. That's what's required. And that point in time in redemptive history, a request like that came. God's not speaking this way to us today and say, have your children killed. He doesn't, he's not speaking that way. And as we know, he didn't have his son killed. He did provide eventually the Lamb of God, but he provided there a goat. But the point that is being made is the willingness to give up everything, what you love the most in this world, and give it all up if God requires that. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Do you think it was easy for Abraham? But you submit. A person who is justified by faith alone is an active person. God speaks in his word and you obey. And what is the result of that? Well, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. Unlike the demonic faith, the fruit of true faith is useful with God. It's effective God word. He was called a friend of God. In verse 24, you see that a person is justified. Again, the word there, vindicated. How do I know that Abraham had true saving faith? I mean, the man worshiped idols. Um, you know the th- different things that he did wrong, all this stuff. Uh, it, it, the word there means he was vindicated. He was shown to have true saving faith by works and not by faith alone. His works, his willingness to submit to God proved that he was a follower of God. He held nothing back from God, even his own child. We must love God with our whole heart, as Abraham did. And so that's the first example, Father Abraham. Here's the second of a dynamic faith. It's Rahab. Look at verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, this one's uh, actually, this is amazing. I mean, the other story just chokes you up. It's Abraham. He has been waiting for this child like, wow, and now we're just going to talk about a prostitute. And so what James is doing is making this amazing contrast. Abraham was an Israelite. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham in that culture is a man. She is a woman. She has no standing in that culture. Abraham is the beloved patriarch. She is a despised prostitute. And yet, here's the important thing. What they have most in common is the fact that they had a dynamic, demonstrated, true, saving faith. Abraham's faith was demonstrated to God. He loved God with all his heart. Rahab's faith is demonstrated because she loved her neighbor as herself. And so James contrasts her faith with the, with the man in that first study. Remember, he, he um, went and said, oh, be well, and, and thinks he helped the, the homeless person. 
Um, and so now she, he's contrasting that. They were unwilling to help in their need. She's willing to help and follow through. Her walk matched her talk. Her works matched her words. You read about this story in Joshua 2. You remember Joshua sends the spies into the land of Jericho. And, and they're, they're, before they're found out, Rahab takes them in and confesses there, oh, I know that the God of Israel, the Lord our God, is a God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. And so she agrees because she knew God to hide the spies and let them down by a rope so that they can escape. Her, her faith is demonstrated by her actions in helping those who had need. And in this case, it was the Jewish spies. It's a simple story, and yet as simple as it is, it, it, it demonstrates saving faith in a very tangible way. And so we read in verse 25, so she was justified, again, she was vindicated by works when she received the messengers and sent them on their way. See, aren't you glad that she, they included Rahab as an example of faith, not just the, the great patriarch uh, uh, Abraham, but the prostitute Rahab? He uses both. Why? Because God uses both. God will use you as well if you have true saving faith. And Rahab was a prostitute, but so she had faith, so it didn't remain there. Did you know she went on to get married to a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah? And, and one of her descendants was a man named Boaz, who marries Ruth and is the grandfather of King David. And along with Abraham, she is mentioned in the Heroes of the Faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. And, and she's also in the genealogy of Jesus. See, faith changes things be it a patriarch or a prostitute, when God regenerates your heart, when he changes you from the inside out, you, 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 your faith and you believe in him, your life will be changed forever. Mine was, everyone's is. You hold back nothing from him. It's, again, not going to be easy. At times we can be selfish, but you'll be like Abraham. You'll be ready and willing to help those in need that you can, like Rahab. You will love God, and you will love your neighbor. And so let me quickly just summarize. False faith offers no service to your fellow man. It offers words and nothing more. A false faith offers no obedience to God. It's like the demons. It's intellectual. It's not enough. Faith without deeds and actions is dead, says verse 17. And so we learn that. On the other hand, we learn that true saving faith offers costly obedience to God. That's what Abraham proved. And it offers costly service to your fellow man, as Rahab herself proved. So genuine faith is visible. It's more than intellectual. It works. See, this section of James is going all the way back to chapter 1 with the key verse in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's what he's talking about. You can come and hear me preach. I pray that your hearts are indeed stirred and that you would go out and do something. But if all you did was hear what I said from the Word and, and the message of the Word stirred your heart and you walk out and nothing happens, you're deceiving yourself. Or as James says now, it is useless. 
See, we need to be continually narrowing the gap between what we know and how we live. And, and, and so as one commentator points out, he gives you a few questions. I thought I would ask him. How willing are you to give up everything for the cause of God? Jesus said, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. How willing are you? How sensitive are you to the needy and deprived among us, maybe in our city, town? Does the way you live at home match the way you confess here in church? Does your conduct match your creed? They're important questions as individuals. But I, I want you to understand, it's just an important question for us as a church, as a whole, as a body, as St. Stephen. Why? Well, in Revelation, Jesus confronts the churches as a whole, and he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. They had the reputation. They believed that they were doing all the right things. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. He's talking to a church as a whole. You know, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but it doesn't mean the gates of hell won't prevail against St. Stephen. We're one individual church. Ask yourself this. What kind of church would we be, would St. Stephen be, if every member here were to act just like you? If everyone else were as active or as inactive as you are. Of the four case studies, where does your faith fall? Is it a dead or demonic faith? Is it a demonstrated or dynamic faith? Do you truly love God and your neighbor biblically? See, if that does not describe your faith, then verse 26 says, your faith is no better than a corpse in a grave. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so what do we do? Or what do you do? I'll close with this. If you're concerned that when I asked that question, you thought, well, the church would immediately be empty half the time if they were all like me, and there would be nobody doing anything because I don't do enough. Or, or maybe, maybe you said, you know, I, I've been stirred, but do I really believe um, let me be clear about something. I want you to understand. You don't, you don't start by working hard. Well, I'll fix this. Uh, you know, I, I haven't believed before, but I'm going to work real hard. I'm going to show up at every prayer meeting. You know, I'm, I'm going to go out and help the homeless. All wonderful things, but don't get the cart before the horse, as I said in the beginning. You don't start by working and hope that because you're working, you'll eventually have faith. Faith comes before works. Faith is what promotes your works. You can no more get life from works than you could get life from a dead corpse by propping him up. I could prop up a dead corpse, move his arms, but he's not alive. He's not acting. He's still dead. Works are useless apart from faith. And so what you need, what we all need, is Jesus. See why? Because only Jesus can raise a dead corpse. He's the only one. He did it. With Lazarus, he did himself, and he will us. And so what you need is Jesus. 
He's the foundation of your faith. Faith or works don't save you. Jesus saves you. Faith connects you to Jesus. That is how you receive life. That is how you receive his mercy. You cry out to him, God, be merciful to me. Ask him to be gracious. Ask him to grant you repentance. Ask him to give you new life. Ask him, dear Lord, send your Holy Spirit to regenerate my heart. I am dead. I am dead. Occasionally, I've demonstrated some demonic faith, but it's not real faith. Regenerate my heart and apply the salvation that Christ accomplished on the cross. In Ezekiel, we, we read of these dead bones. And, 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 and God says, speak to the bones. And he speaks to the bones, and the bones come alive. That's the only hope I have right now in bothering to share what I'm sharing. I'm speaking to you the words of life. I am coming before you, and I'm telling you this. And if you're dead, I can do nothing more than that unless God, by his spirit, regenerates your heart, and you are lifted out of your death into new life. And when he does, what happens is those bones begin to rattle, as we read in Ezekiel. He gives you faith. You will be declared righteous. You will be justified before God. He will now be your friend and not your enemy, and you will work. You will work to his glory. See, saving faith is a living faith. It's a faith that works. Let's pray. Father, once again, we hear the words and we reflect upon our lives and we know that we all fall short. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us, as was said in the sermon, to narrow the gap between what we believe and how we live. And for those who don't know you, Lord, their only hope is your spirit descending upon them, drawing them to yourself. We pray that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen.